step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Ron Barr, and this is today's edition of Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. Hale Irwin joins us on Sports Byline. He's a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame, 20-time winner on the PGA Tour, including three U.S. Open championships, and he won overall 83 tournaments, and he is one of only a few players in history to win three U.S. Open titles, becoming the oldest ever U.S. Open champion in 1990 at 45, and he is one of five golfers to win tournaments on all six continents on which he played golf. And he is also the winningest player in Champions Tour history of the 45 career victories. But, but Hale, what I found interesting was that you won an NCAA Division I Individual Golf Championship at Colorado. And also, you were a two-time All-Big 8 defensive back and academic All-American in football. Now, I've been covering sports for a long time, but I cannot recall a dual-sport athlete who played football and golf. Do you know of anybody else that has? Well, not anybody that's got a brain. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it, it, going back uh, to those years, I, I didn't know where my golf was going. It was uh, sort of a common denominator amongst all the sports in which I played. I enjoyed it. I won't say more than any others, but it's something I could do on my own. I didn't need a teammate. I could go out and hit balls or I could play, and, and it was me and the golf course. So it was always part of my life from from a small child, but then again, every sport was. And, and uh, as I kind of got on through my high school career and other sports sort of fell by the wayside, and here's a full-ride scholarship, and my golf is not anywhere near where golf schools were interested. So um, it was take it or leave it, and, and I took it. And I, you know, certainly I had my setbacks in football, but I, I did make some successes and my golf kept developing and lo and behold uh, my senior year and winning the NCAA golf championship was really the catalyst that got me uh, seriously thinking about getting on the tour. 
John Frank, who used to be the tight end for the San Francisco 49ers, was a friend of mine, and he was going to med school after he finished, and about six years into his career, and he was a good one. He won championships with Bill Walsh. He decided to retire, and I asked him why, and he said, because I didn't want to injure my hands if I'm going to be a doctor. And it made a lot of sense. Did you have any fear factor from a golf health standpoint playing football? Oh, absolutely. Uh, but I think anybody that plays any game will tell you if you don't play 100%, you will not enjoy it and or you will get hurt. Uh, so you have to go out and give it everything you've got. Now, had had I been, uh, you know, with surgery in mind, for instance, and golf is sort of that way, but um, I've got a little finger that kind of looks differently than some of the others (laughs) but uh you know i think it was uh i was lucky honestly i was very lucky i've got a shoulder that kind of barks at me and i've got a back every now and again that barks at me but for the most part i got through uh, without any surgeries and anybody that plays any contact sports going to have something later on in life which manifests itself and that's kind of where i am right now were there any football disciplines that were applicable to your golf disciplines that you needed Oh, absolutely. I I constantly refer to what I learned in football, or for that matter, any sport. But, in, you know, where I, with the positions that I played, I was a quarterback and I was a, an inside safety more than often than not the, the safety. Uh, it was a, you had to do your job. You had, you're sort of out there in no man's land by yourself. If you made a mistake, it was six points. Uh, so it was something that I had to really dedicate myself to. I had to concentrate at it. I had to do read my keys. I had to be in the right position at the right time because I was not blessed with great physical size nor nor speed. I had thickness, but that doesn't always mean that you're going to outrun anybody. So I had to really concentrate on what I had to do to make myself a better football player, and that really and truly uh, helped me become a better golfer because when I – when I got on the tour, I was really undeveloped. But the effort that it took to play football really transcended itself into my efforts to play golf. And, and I honestly think that helped me a great deal. Tell me a little bit about your dad, because he was the one that introduced you to the game of golf when you were only four years old. You broke 70 for the first time at the age of 14. Tell me a little bit about that not only personal relationship, but the golf relationship you had with your dad. Well, my father was, you know, of that great generation where they had lived through two world wars and the depression and all the, the travails and heartaches and hardships that that generation had to endure. And um, he was not a talkative kind of person. He did uh, a lot of things by deed and, and showing what to do. And he was, I grew up in a very small town in southeast Kansas, and he was on the road a good bit as a salesman. But when he would come home, I'd hear the car come up the driveway, and, boy, I'd run and get the baseball glove and meet him as he's stepping out of the car, and we were playing catch, and we were doing something. But he was uh, the man that really got me going. He would take some old clubs. He'd cut them off. He'd wrap the shafts in electrical tape, and that was my golf club and my grip. And uh, the little course we had was a nine-hole sand green golf course wasn't much to speak of, but that was my place to go out and do my thing. And when we moved to Colorado when I was 14, um, I'd only played on grass three times prior to moving to Colorado. So it was a whole new time for me to learn a new 
a new way of playing golf, really. And it took a while to get there, but I made it. But Dad was the guy that showed me how he wasn't a pro. Uh, he was a good athlete in his day, I was told. And, uh, you know, I can still remember his golf swing, and it was okay. And I would say, with today's standards and knowing handicapping, I'd say he was probably about a, a 12 handicap or so. So, um, but that's the way it was. You know, you didn't, we didn't have teams of people and professionals around like they do today. What's the best piece of advice, golf advice, he ever gave you then? Well, it's probably advice that transcends just golf. He said, never start something you can't finish. And I've looked upon that piece of advice a number of times that really uh, showed me the way. Uh, One tournament in particular, I was played poorly in the first round, and I was going to go home. I was tired. I was going to withdraw. I'd never done that before, and I was cleaning out my locker room or my locker, and and I felt his presence, and I and I distinctly remember that saying, that, okay, I'll go one more day and miss the cut, and then I'll go home. Well, I played very well the next day, made the cut, played very, very well on the weekend, and ended up uh, tying for the tournament lead, and uh, we had a two-hole playoff the next uh, that night until it got dark, and I won on the fourth hole the next day. So here I went from withdrawing to uh, winning, just simply because I, I followed his advice. You won the individual NCAA Division One championship in golf in your senior year. That was in 1967, as I mentioned before. And then you turned professional the following year. Now, I understand the thought process of kids coming out of college uh, in their junior year and going into the uh, professional baseball or coming out early in basketball and baseball. But that def- decision to become a pro in the sport of golf, take me through that process a little bit for you because it is different. You're playing on team sports in one way, but uh, when it comes to golf, it's an individual. What you do determines what you make. Exactly. And well, you have to recall back in, in them our days, uh, the very thought of expressing your uh, desire or your intent to become a professional by virtue of the rules of golf and USGA, you were deemed to be a professional because of intent. So you couldn't talk about it. You couldn't uh, consult with anyone. You you really kind of had to keep it to yourself and, and not make it public, at least. Uh, otherwise, you would be deemed a professional. So I had a lot to learn. I knew that. I couldn't quit school. Uh, my parents didn't have that much money to afford college so and i had a full ride scholarship things were being paid you know life was was pretty darn good for hale Irwin at the time and uh that ncaa championship just uh pulled us into something very very unique and very worthwhile and it gave me the confidence to go out and give it a try and that's when i turned pro that's when i said okay i can compete with my peer group i'm going to turn professional and, and that's what i did in january of 68 Tell me about some of those peers in that group when you started out. Oh, my. Uh, well, we had, back then, we had a gentleman by the name of Bob Dixon, who was a British amateur and U.S. amateur champion. He played at Oklahoma State. Uh, we had uh, guys out of Houston. Marty Fleckman comes to mind. Uh, there's a guy out of uh, Alabama, LSU, uh Mac McClendon, uh, guys that perhaps people haven't heard of because it was so long ago, but they were all very, very good players. And most of them did turn pro 
but for whatever reason or another, they didn't make it or they opted to go somewhere else in their life. Uh, but it was a very competitive group. Bob Murphy was another guy out of Florida. Um, Steve Melnick was another guy out of Florida. He was a U.S. amateur champion. So, you know, there were some good players. And then there was me. <laughs> I kind of stuck, I kind of stuck my feather in the bonnet and got in there and started wiggling around and, and started feeling comfortable and confident. And well, here we are today. Hale, hold on just a second. Hale Irwin is with us, member of the World Golf Hall of Fame. We're talking about his life, but also about his fine career, three U.S. Open championships. We continue across the country and around the world. We've got you on Sports Byline. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hale Irwin with us on Sports Byline. 20-time winner on the PGA Tour, including three U.S. Open championships, and he won 83 tournaments overall. Hale, uh, when I asked that question about some of those young people coming out, tell me about some of the people that were on the tour at that time, some of the names that all of a sudden you found yourself in the same crowd with. Well, it's really uh, a roll call of who's who in the name of golf, with the exception of you know, maybe some guys that uh, uh, preceded me by a bit. Um, but there was uh, Arnold Palmer, my gosh, who could forget Arnold Palmer? Jack Nicklaus, who is the new kid coming up. Uh, there was uh, this new guy, Lee Trevino. Uh, there was Gary Player. And uh, later on, there was Tom Watson, uh, Johnny Miller, Gene Littler, Billy Casper. Uh, just some great, great players that were really instrumental in bringing the tour from the Sam Sneed, Ben Hogan days, you know, the World War uh, two era and beyond. Byron Nelson was a guy that I got to know while he wasn't a player. I got to know Byron, and these guys were just so terrific. Uh, they helped each other through life, really, because it wasn't cushy then like it is now. Uh, it wasn't nearly as rewarding, and these guys really um, busted their bums to to make it better. And uh, to, you know, to them, I think we owe a great deal of gratitude. But there was. Uh, you, you name somebody, and they were out there. Uh, and those are the guys that, that were my heroes, not just one, but all of them, simply because they were unique in their swings. They had unique personalities, and I tried to pick the best from all of them and, and make myself better. And, boy, just every time you turn around, there's somebody else that was, oh, my gosh, look, there's, there's so-and-so. And, uh, and I, would, I would follow them and see what they did to make themselves champions. You know, that could be overwhelming for a young professional golfer, but yet you kept your balance. You competed 
What was it that allowed you to have that balance to be able to compete with names like that at that particular time? Well, perhaps it's just a pure stroke of luck. Uh, I don't know, but I think it really had a lot to do with my athletic background, knowing that uh, I had succeeded in an arena, being college football at least, that tested me physically and mentally. Uh, you know, I didn't excel in school, but I, I made acceptable grades. I did things uh, in a competitive sort of nature. I didn't give in to the temptation to quit. That just wasn't in me. Uh, I think whatever I did, I wanted to be as good as I could be. And that drive to succeed and excel has always been there. And, yes, it can be frustrating at times. It, it can take its toll on you. But if you keep pushing it and keep raising the bar and you keep reaching for that brass ring and make it a little more difficult each time, then you're always trying your best uh, to get the best results. Hey, let me ask you a perspective question because you had 20 victories on the PGA Tour beginning in 1971, the Sea Pines Heritage Classic. You finished up with the 1994 MCI Heritage Golf Classic, and you won prize money of just under $6 million. Tell me how the tour matured, they developed, how it changed during that period of time from 1971 to 1994? Oh, boy. Uh, that that may take forever to answer that <laughs> one, even if, I, even if I could. But I think it was uh, the evolution of, of the game that came from the uh, – post-World War II era. Uh, Arnold Palmer was right in the middle of that, and I, I really kind of think him winning at Cherry Hills in 1960 uh, with sort of the advent of live golf television really propelled the game. He identified, or a lot of people identified with Arnie, and, and we had Jack Nicklaus who was sort of vying for the, the crown, if you wish, and the good guy, bad guy kind of thing, good cop, bad cop, and they made a dynamic duo, and Gary Player, this guy from across the ocean, brought in his his player and his expertise. And uh, then here comes Trevino sort of upsetting the apple cart. So I think people got really excited about the game. Uh, we had the uh, development of more golf courses, more golf communities. People were really kind of into it. And television started saying here's an alternative to the other sports that perhaps we had been watching through the years. So it just kind of all coalesced into a very favorable product, uh, and people could identify with a lot of the players. They could get up close to them. If they came to tournaments, they could literally get right next to them, elbow to elbow. Uh, you weren't sitting up in the stands and you couldn't tell a guy with his helmet on. You don't know what he looks like. So we had a, a great cadre of people that were developing the tour aside from the players. It was a, a very exciting time, and lots of things were happening. And the, the thing that I, I think, really turned the tide, if you wish, there was an I, I played 1997. I was playing it then. What was the senior tour? And this before big money, but it was still nice money. That you know, I had won a little over three million dollars in prize money. I'd won nine tournaments. I'd played so very, very well, and it was the most money won by any professional in the world. Now, here we are, fast forward, some guy named Tiger Woods comes along, and the prize money just took off. And $3 million became eclipsed very, very quickly. And now, a $3 million a year is okay. It's very good, but with today's standards, it's just okay. Uh, so 
I think we've seen such a growth in the game. We've seen, uh, I'd say, a little bit unfortunate that we've lost some of the characters, some of the personalities that were there many, many years ago. Not to say that there's not nice young players out there. I don't mean that. I don't mean to be disparaging at all. But at the same time, we had a lot of different, unique golf swings. Today, most of the players swing very much alike. Uh, the behavior, the attitude, the personalities are a bit more subdued compared to what we had a number of years ago. So uh, while it's still exciting, it's just a different era. Yeah, I want to point out to everybody to put this in perspective. Uh, during that period of time, you had 20 victories over 23 years. You won just under $6 million. And on the PGA Senior Champions Tour, you were the career leader in wins and earnings with 45 victories and over $26 million. So it did it did grow up. Let me touch uh, base on the three U.S. Open championships because they fascinate me. Uh, the first one came at Wingfoot in 1974 at the age of 29, and that tournament uh, really became known as the Massacre at Wingfoot. What was it that made that tournament so brutal? The course, the course conditions, what else made it brutal? Well, the course was very difficult. Uh, the rough was extremely hard. The greens uh, were very firm, even for those standards, today's standards. They were very fast greens. Wingfoot was just a difficult course, uh, period. But then when you add the the extremely high roughs, and I'm talking about roughs that could go from the ground up to your knee in spots, um, certainly up to your shin, over your ankle. So if you hit the ball in the rough, you had no chance of getting to the green. You had to go sideways to, and then go from there. Um, it, the weather was not an issue. We had good weather all week. So it just speaks to how difficult the course was. And, and I... I I've used this example many times that uh, roughly by Wednesday, I would say roughly 70% of the players were kind of giving up. They, they were sort of beaten. And that's where I think my athletic, my specifically my football career, really helped me because it was a discipline. Okay, this guy's big and tough, but, you know, I've, I've played there. I've been against big, tough people. So you got to hang in there and expect to get run over, but, you know, get your licks in while you can. And, and that really kind of kind of gave me a, a real boost for that week because it was attrition. It was very, very difficult. You've also said, and I have the quote here, I've always enjoyed playing tough courses. It's much more of a challenge to me. You earned 35000 for that victory at Wingfoot. And you said something, and I wonder whether this was true or not. You said that you had had a vivid dream three weeks earlier that you won the U.S. Open, which you only shared with your wife. That's true. Uh, some people might say, well, yeah, it's easy to say that. Maybe you're looking for a little publicity or something like that. But I didn't go telling anybody because, A, I didn't want it to come back and bite me. <laughs> and, B, uh, it wasn't fantasy. And I it gave me a lot of confidence that you know, in my heart and in my mind and in my subconscious, I was getting ready and it was time. We only have about 40 seconds left before we have to break. But what is it that you thought of when you had a chance to reflect on that victory? What meant the most to you about that win? I think it was the effort it took, uh, the discipline it took. I was very proud of the way I hung in there, and I had won two tournaments prior to that. But this put me on the international stage, and it proved to me that I could win the big tournaments and, and the big venues and, and perhaps in, in time be a big-time champion. So uh, it proved a lot to me, and, and then it was a matter of keeping that and continuing on that path of success. 
Hale Irwin is with us. And when we come back on the other side, we're going to talk about his second U.S. Open title. It was a challenge, and we'll find out why. But Hale Irwin, member of the World Golf Hall of Fame, 20-time winner on the PGA Tour, including those three U.S. Open championships. And he is one of a few players in history to win three Open titles, becoming the oldest ever to win it in 1990 at the age of 45. And he is one of five golfers to win tournaments on all six continents on which golf is played. We continue across the country and around the world. We've got you on America's Sports Talk Show, Sports Byline. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hale Irwin is with us here on Sports Byline. We talked about his first uh, win when it came uh, at the U.S. Open, and uh, you had a second win that came about as well, and it was probably, I would have to say, the most challenging of all your major championships of the three. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that lead-up to that tournament. Well, uh, I think the... uh in 1974, I was I was there by myself. My wife was at home with our second newborn, and uh, but she couldn't attend. But in '79, my family was with me. I had played very poorly the first round, fell uh, well back after one round, and and I was in danger of missing the cut. So I I really had to play a good second round to just enjoy being there on the weekend, and I did. I I kind of put my head down and forgot about the day before and concentrated on literally shot to shot to shot and not the big picture. I was just painting little pictures as I went and, and I did make the cut. I played quite well. Uh, and then I played an extremely good round on Saturday and lo and behold, I wake up, uh, or I, I, I find coming into the Sunday round, I'm, I have a five shot lead. So I've gone from in danger of missing the cut to a five shot lead. And now I'm thinking, how in the world do you play with a five-shot lead? I said, well, the only thing I can really do is try and make it six. And uh, after ten holes, I had moved it to six. And, you know, now, okay, let's try and make a seven. That didn't happen, but I went to the 17th tee with a five-shot lead, and I gave myself the unfortunate luxury of thinking I won it. And I immediately went double bogey, bogey. Um, so I learned a valuable lesson right there is that you don't quit until the finish. And I I really kind of let my guard down. And with a five-shot lead, it was hard to give it away. But, boy, I was trying very hard to. But I, I learned that you have to stay in the game until it's over. Yeah, you've said the greatest disappointment of your career was at that 84 U.S. Open at Wingfoot. 
Uh, and you later said, too, and I found this interesting and insightful, a number of factors were in play, and it was very emotional. I thought it would be great to win uh, 10 years later at the same venue, and more than anything else, my father was dying of cancer then, and I thought it would be wonderful to give him a victory. I destroyed myself with the pressures I'd built up. Uh, how does one deal with pressure when it comes to golf, particularly under such an emotional uh, moment like you were dealing with there? Well, I I didn't do it well, and I I built up this, uh, and I won't say it was an insignificant mountain because it wasn't. It was more of an emotional roller coaster for me because, uh, as we mentioned earlier in this piece, uh, my father was very instrumental in my life, and and to see him uh, passing as he was, I just felt like this might put a smile on his face one last time, and. And I just made this such an important thing, and I forgot about just going out and playing. I got wrapped up in, in all the other things that uh, one shouldn't get wrapped up in when you're in competition, but I couldn't help it. And I really didn't play very well that final day. And uh, as you said, it's all the things in my career that disappointed me. It was probably that performance. And one might say, well, it's understandable, but not really, um, simply because I had gone away from the traits that made me uh, got me where I was, and I, I let myself get a little too emotional with what was in front of me, or excuse me, what was behind me. Instead of what was in front of me, I should have been concentrating more on the uh, the task at hand rather than what was hopeful. And uh, anyway, it was a, it was a tough deal, but you know I learned from that as well. I've, I've tried to I've tell people many times that you learn from your losses and your failures, but I think I've learned more from my successes simply because I don't dwell on the negative very long. I think about it, I roll around in my mind, then I discard it. I put it in the trash bin, and then I move forward on the things that I did well. And after that, uh, I, I really tried to stay focused on on what was in front of me and not what was behind me. I think a lot of people remember what happened to Greg Norman at the Masters Golf Championship, and uh, the wheels came off on that as well. Well, one thing I've always wondered about, Hale, is the game of golf is one that has a pace, a very slow pace. You have a lot of time to think about a lot of different things. Is that something that is awfully difficult to get your hands around to be able to control emotions when maybe I should use this club? No, maybe I didn't. I, as a pilot, I learned your first decision is your best decision. And so I'm wondering if that applies to golf in any way. Absolutely. I think uh, oftentimes when you have experience on your side and you have a gut feeling or that first inclination or that, that first thought is generally speaking going to be your best one when you, you start second guessing your instincts uh, then you have some issues in front of you but um, I think it's human nature to always try and find another way and if you get too analytical then you start bouncing the ball back and forth and it never settles down but you know just what you said being a pilot you, you can't afford mistakes. Uh, you, you kind of go with the first instinct, and that's what I've tried to do is kind of eliminate all of the things that aren't pertinent to to now and deal with that and let all the other stuff go by. But I've also let my – I've trained myself from, as you said, this is sometimes is a slow process, but walking from the tee to my, to my second shot, I had a process by which I let my mind wander just a bit. You to think of some other things because it's you, it's impossible to stay in that state of concentration that long. So I let myself kind of go out and think of some other things. But then as I got closer to the ball, I would get rid of them and then start thinking about the shot. I'd see the lie, I'd see the distance, I'd, all those things. But 
with my father involved in in '84, uh, it was hard to get that out of my system. An incredible top of the mountain year was 1990. That was when you capped uh, your year with winning your third U.S. Open victory. Is that one that brings a, a smile to you? Not only that victory, uh, but I'm talking about the whole year. Oh, absolutely. Because uh, it's it's sort of a long story, but in 1985, I had just won the Memorial Tournament, the Jack's Tournament up in Columbus, Ohio. And But I'd also started my golf course design company uh, shortly thereafter. So some of the effort that it took to play, I, I put over into the uh, effort of getting the design company going and uh, when you take a little bit from one area and you put it somewhere else, that first area is going to suffer, and my golf game suffered. I could hit the golf shots, but I was just not playing. I was not scoring the way that my my game should have been because I was hitting the shots. It was just the scoring was not there. The concentration, the focus just wasn't there. And then the fall, the winter, I should say, of 1989, I sat at my desk and I I pulled out a yellow pad and I wrote down the tournaments that I had won and what uh, memorable, positive thoughts I could remember about them. And I was going to give myself just one more year. And if it didn't work, then I was going to get off the tour and and because I was getting quote old at the time um, and really focus more on my design work. Well, when I did that, it got my mind thinking about playing again. And at the start of the season, I could feel it starting to come around because I had had four and a half years of very indifferent play. But once we got to the Open, I'd had you know, five months or so of preparation, uh, mentally and physically, to get ready. And, and I was an invitee. Uh, the USGA offered me an invitation to play, and, and I went there with determination to, to make their uh, selection look good. And uh, I was playing okay. Uh, there wasn't anything spectacular about my play, but... I was going to the first tee on the final day, and and I met Billy Ray Brown, who was one of the co-leaders, and he asked for a little advice, and I told him, you know, just you know, go out and play your game. Don't you're playing well. Don't beat yourself. Don't do anything stupid. Just uh, stay stay in the moment. And I said, boy, that was really good advice. Maybe you ought to try that. <laughs> <laughs> so as the day unfolded, uh, Greg had birdied the tenth hole, and I thought, guys, you make a couple more birdies. He might have a chance because the lead at the time, I think, is around eight under par, and he was maybe five. And I looked at the leaderboard, and the top 15 names get in the following year. And I was one shot out of the top 15. So I, I just started, okay, let's just aim for the top 15, which meant I had to play the last seven holes, one under par. And he immediately bring 11. So I readjusted my, my goal, said, okay, let's go for top 10. And I birdied 12. And I thought, oh, this is good. Top five. And I birdied 13. I thought, boy, this is, you're doing well. Keep going. And I birdied 14. So all of a sudden, I've gone from out of top 15 to now I'm one shot back. And I thought, if I can make one more, I'm going to get greedy here. If I can make one more, who knows what can happen. That, that will be the leader in the clubhouse. And then those leaders, not that they couldn't play better or at least as well, if not better, but they have to look at that. And it's harder to play back in the lead than it is kind of up in front. And so when that big putt went in on the uh, 72nd hole, uh, I knew full well that it wasn't going to win outright. But I was very proud of the fact that I had not only made the putt, but I'd played the last eight holes of the U.S. Open Championship in 500 par. Uh, and so 
history says that uh, I was the winner the, the next day in the playoff with Mike Donald, who, who really had played quite well. He just had some unfortunate uh, breaks coming down, but I, I played well in the end, and it, it's just you just never give up. We have about three and a half minutes left, and I'd be amiss if I didn't talk about your time on the PGA Senior, which is now the Champions Tour. You become 50, you take on that, and you had such great success. Did you ever think about changing your birth certificate to show 50 a little bit earlier in your career? (laughs) (laughs) Well, not really, but uh, sadly, the the hospital in which I was born in Joplin, Missouri, was destroyed by the tornado there a number of years ago. And so I guess my birth certificate could have been altered by by nature. But uh, I found that 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 period of my life, when I was about 50 to 53 or 4 years old, was the best golf of my life in, in terms of shot execution, uh, being able to hit what I wanted to, literally on command, I, I did everything very, very well with great confidence. And But I felt that coming back as we were talking about the third U.S. Open at Medina and how that won. I, I continued that, that streak. And so when I hit the, the senior tour, then now known as PGA Tour Champions, um, I was quite confident in going out and, and playing exceptional golf, and I did. A lot of people that play on that tour have told me, I've talked to Tom Watson about this, uh, have told me that there is a different feel to it. There's a relaxedness, even though you have to focus in and you have to play good golf in order to be competitive and to win. But there is something good about it. It touches your soul when it comes to the game of golf. What was he talking about? Well, I think what Tom was referring to, and I certainly, you know, Tom's been a fantastic player for many, many years, uh, one of the stalwarts in the game. But I think what happens is that for those players, let's say like Tom or like myself, who have had success, you have the opportunity to continue that. It's, it's not like you're fighting an uphill battle with some of the younger players. You're now with your peer group, and you are now, quote, one of the younger players. And it's a, an opportunity to continue on what you were doing. And some of the players that have maybe had uh, less success, now for them a, a chance to rewrite the record book, to put the past behind them and to go forward. I think it's a, a breath of fresh air, and and I think by the time you get to be a senior, fifty years old, your perspective changes. Your, uh, your, well, your priorities might change, uh, whether it be children or grandchildren, the way you lead your life, things change, and there's a little bit of circumspection there that that you look at and say, you know, maybe it's not quite as important as it used to be. Uh, to enjoy the game and enjoy the people a bit more now than, say, when you're 25 or 30 years old. In about uh, a minute that we have left, when you think back on your life and your career, is there a moment that kind of brings a smile to your face, engraved in your mind, that you will never forget, Hale? Well, of course. Uh, you know, I'm, as we're speaking, I'm looking here on the wall of the, the Sports Illustrated covers of the three Open Championships. Uh, fantastic as they were, you, you can't ever forget your first victory as professional. I'll never forget that. Tapping in a, about a 12-inch putt, and I thought I had hit it with bubble gum on my, my putter. It's like the putter stuck on the ball. Um, the father-son championship that I won with my son, uh, very, very proud of that, and I was so proud of him. And, um, and I think just being around the people that I've had the opportunity to 
to be with and some of the young people and the cultures that I've been able to touch and be a part of. It's just it's been a fantastic life. Hale, I want to thank you for this time and just kind of walking through uh, your life and your career as well. What I remember about you is that you were not only a champion, but you were always a gentleman. I remember the press conferences. I remember the interviews, and you were always so very kind. Thank you for sparing some time for us uh, and sharing your life with us. Oh, you're quite welcome, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hale Irwin with us, a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame, and, of course, uh, he won three U.S. Open championships and was the oldest to win it in 1990 at the age of 45. We continue with more of you on America's Sports Talk Show. You have been listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Garcella finally tells his story, and so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.